Well, if you remember that scene from Bruce Almighty, Bruce becomes God and he suddenly hears everybody's prayer requests at once. He's overwhelmed by it. He tries to organize it. He tries to answer it. He goes, man, these people are whiners. And you sort of wonder, how can God hear all of our prayers? How could he answer all of our prayers? And when Bruce answers yes to all the prayers, he finds out that sometimes those yeses cause more problems than they cause good things to happen. I think many times we have a lot of misconceptions about prayer. Today in our series, Honest to God, we're looking at what the Bible describes as lament prayers. Prayers of discouragement, prayers of grief, prayers of sadness or disrespect. Ways of getting beneath the veneer of our lives to show that maybe all is not as good as it appears to be on the outside. There's been songs throughout history that have spoken to that. This next song is one I've always loved goes back for you know many, many decades, but it speaks to the idea that many of us walk into a room, we walk into a party, we walk into our lives, we pretend in front of others that everything's going great, but if we dig down just beneath that happiness, there's some sadness there, there's some lament there, there's the sound of silence. Let's listen together. I think it's often we don't know how to process our grief or sadness with God, with each other, with ourselves, and so we just choose silence. But underneath the surface are these emotions we're not sure how to process. In fact, depression, sadness, and its many forms has become an ongoing issue in our society. In fact, several studies in the last 10 years have shown that Facebook has been a cause uh, of depression, especially amongst millennials, but even others, as you compare your life to all the fantasy lives that everybody posts on their Facebook page. Their kids are always winning awards. Their kids are always behaving properly. Their marriage is always doing great. Their career is always doing great. It's just always on its next level. And you're always comparing your reality to somebody else's partial glimpse of their reality. And that's causing depression and discouragement. I have a million-dollar idea. If you want to invest in it, feel free to steal it. Instead of having Facebook, we ought to have a fact book. Same thing, but you only present facts and, and, and the dark side of your life. So uh, you go to post in the morning, uh, hey, I almost had a fight with my wife last night, contemplating divorce again. I know I shouldn't, but that's what it was like last night. <laughs> a few weeks later, yep, my son got caught with marijuana. We're really embarrassed. I had to go visit the police. Hope you're having a great day. Uh, two weeks ago, struggling with porn again, uh, just really finding that the alcoholism combined with this struggle is really an issue for me. Now, if somebody started posting like that, you might say, oh, there's somebody real I could identify with rather than, oh my goodness, I'm never going to live up. I'm not living the perfect life. So one of the challenges with sadness, with depression, with discouragement is trying to voice our dreams, our expectations, our hurts. And depression, sadness, lamenting is not something we're always comfortable with in our culture. We're much better at bragging or pretending. In fact, I read some quotes to folks who describe what sadness feels like, what depression feels like. One guy said, it's the feeling of drowning when you look around and everyone else seems to be breathing. Another one said, it's the feeling like the walls are always closing in around you and you have less and less space to move. Someone else described it as a numbing sadness where you even lose ambition to try. Somebody else described it as a dark hole that the more you try and claw out of it, the deeper in you get. And whether you struggle with low levels of 
sadness or the anger that comes out of not dealing with your sadness or whether you have someone in your life struggling with sadness in some way, we all need to know how to process through issues of grief, sadness, discouragement. So you hear those words, you hear what it sounds like. Let me show you what it looks like. What it looks like to uh, have depression in your life. It's interesting because uh, for those of you who know a little bit air pressure, normal air pressure is pushing in around us all the time at 14.7 pounds per square inch. This water bottle, for example, is tough. You can't push this thing closed. And yet right now there's 14.7 pounds of air pressure pushing on every square inch. But it doesn't collapse because there's air on the inside of it pushing out against it at 14.7 what happens when you're discouraged or depressed is that something happens that affects your, your soul, your spirit. Your soul and your spirit is impacted. And there's lots of different ways. And the Christian has a very holistic view of this because we believe that God made us his body, soul, and spirit. So sometimes the trigger point can be something that happens emotionally. It could be biochemically. Something happens in our life. And it's that biochemical reaction that our chemicals just aren't forming right. could be spiritual. But there's something going on in the inside of our lives that's affecting us. What happens is when your soul is ill, when your soul is hurt, when your spirit is crushed, we're actually going to take the air out of this bottle. That's all we're going to do is take the air out. And you're going to see what happens when normal air pressure, just normal living, normal life, the stuff that you and I are used to, begins to impact the same bottle that's got something going wrong in the inside. And for many of us, it's a trigger. The trigger might be the loss of a parent. The trigger might be a transition of a child moving on to em- and we're moving into empty nest. It could be a death in a family. All of a sudden... The normal air pressure, the normal struggles of life, just by something happening inside us, we can no longer withstand the pressure. We can no longer take it. The things that we look around, everybody else is doing fine. But we become crushed by just normal, everyday pressures of life. And people can't understand. We no longer have the equilibrium. And what's our solution? What do we do? Well, we've got to get the secrets out that there's no shame in feeling sad. There's no shame in being discouraged. There's no shame in admitting that there's something broken in our heart or in our soul. And yet also, part of getting the secret and sadness out is also letting God and other people in to come and heal our souls. And there's a process of going through that called lamenting. You see, expression is the remedy for depression. As we let the secrets and sadness out, and we let God and others in, Expression is the remedy for depression. And in the process of these lament psalms, they begin to speak out their sadness, their pain, their discouragement. And as they get it out, God enters in and other people enter into their pain. That's our main point for today that we're going to look at. Expression is the remedy for depression. So we let sadness and our secrets out and let God and others in. We're going to look at three don'ts from this very, very uh, honest, discouraging psalm in chapter 88 of the book of Psalms. We're going to look at three don'ts and one do. 
And my hope is as we begin to explore somebody who's so honest about his sadness and his soul sickness that we'll realize, one, we're not alone. Two, there's no shame or guilt in going through a time of discouragement or grief. We'll, we'll learn how to invite help. And we will also, by letting it out and just talking about openly, the, the, the power of secrecy that keeps us held down will be opened up as we just normalize struggle and we normalize grief and we normalize not having to pretend to be something that we're not. Our first don't is this. Don't rehearse it. One of the things that it causes us to continue to go down into depression is that negative thoughts grow with repetition. This particular psalm is written by He-Man. His actual name in Hebrew is probably pronounced Heman, but I think of him as He-Man because I grew up in the 80s and He-Man had a huge part in my life. So He-Man is the writer. He-Man was actually the grandson of the prophet Samuel, who was a very famous prophet in Israel's history. He also was the worship director at the church, uh, the, 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 the temple. David had picked him, of all people, to be the artist of his day, the musician of his day, the worship leader of his day. This guy is famous. This guy comes from a famous family. This guy has an important job. This guy has met his career goals. This guy has really a resume that would be sought after. This is a tough, well-established man working for one of the most famous men in history in Israel, Haman. And yet in this psalm, he writes some painfully honest struggles about his sadness, his inner sadness. And those negative thoughts, as he rehearses them, grow. And you're going to see them grow. And by watching what he does, by rehearsing it over and over again, we can begin to learn that it's that rehearsing that can drive us into depression. First, he feels alone. He says this, you have put me away. You have put away my acquaintances. God, you've taken away all my friends. You've taken them far from me. You've made me an abomination to them. Everybody doesn't like me anymore. Nobody wants to talk to me anymore. I feel shut up and I cannot get out. Now, whether that's true or not, just sometimes the ordinary pressure of dealing with people, when our soul is sick, we begin to internalize them. We begin to personalize them. We begin to feel things that on a different day, with a different heart, we may not, but it feels alone. We feel like everyone's out to get us, that God has taken away our friendships. More than that, he feels trapped. That's the problem with that inner pressure, 14.7 pounds of pressure pointing in on you. It's just everyday life makes you feel trapped. I can't get over this. I can't get through this. I can't push on. He says, I am counted with those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man who has no strength. I just cannot do ordinary things. I feel adrift amongst the dead. I'm like the slain who lie in the grave. But again, look at his honesty. Just There's discouragement, there's grief, there's even some suicidal thoughts. But he's getting it all out. Not only that, he doesn't just get it out, he writes it down. Not only is it written down, but God keeps this prayer of all prayers. If you were the editor, you might say, hey, Psalms 88 is a little depressing, let's, let's take that one out. But instead, God wanted to normalize that expression can be the remedy for depression. We need to get out those feelings of sadness. Let me zoom out a little bit more and just show you the whole opening to his passage where he describes his feelings here. I want you to notice again that don't rehearse it. Notice how his negative thoughts are going to grow as he rehearses them over and over and over again. So part of him praying these things out loud is when you say these things out loud, you catch yourself rehearsing them. You catch yourself building on these, these negative patterns. But notice how he starts the prayer. 
O God, O Lord God of my salvation. Now, he's not going to mention God in a nice way from this point on. But I want you to notice that in his despair and in his grief, and it's going to get pretty deep and pretty dark, he starts by saying, God, I'm going through a tough time, but you're my God. You're my Lord. And I need you to be my salvation, my deliverer. I don't know how I'm going to get through this. I don't know how I'm going to get out of this. But I am just going to you in prayer during my time of sadness. I need help. Now notice the the rehearsing of it. I have cried out day and night before you. Will, Will you let my prayer come before you? Will you stop blocking it off and listen to it, he says? Incline your ear to my cry. My soul is full, just full of trouble. My life draws near to the grave. I just feel like life's not worth living. And notice how that grave, he's going to repeat the idea of grave and death and pit four times here. My life draws near to the grave. I'm counted with those who go down to the pit. I'm like a man who has no strength, adrift amongst the dead, like the slain who lie in the grave. Like grave, pit, dead, grave. Part of the struggle with depression is that our mind can actually impact the biological part of our brain. So as our mind begins to think on negative things, our brain begins to wire itself like a giant electromagnet toward negative thoughts, and we begin to attract negative thoughts. And those negative thoughts make that magnet stronger, and we get caught in this cycle that those negative thoughts begin to be attracted to a brain that has actually been modified to look for the bad, which is making us feel worse. So the psalmist would write out their prayers to get that stuff out and begin to catch themselves rehearsing things over and over again like this. Now, there's a neurologist, Christian neurologist, her name's Caroline Leaf, worked in South Africa amongst AIDS victims and uh, traumatized patients in South Africa. In her book, Switch on Your Brain, she was amazed because the science in her day said that our brains are relatively stagnant. You damage them, it's damaged permanently. She began to read the Bible, and the Bible began to describe that your brains are actually pretty moldable, that your mind is different from your brain. And what you meditate on, the Bible talks about soul talk, taking your thoughts captive, catching yourself repeating patterns, renewing your mind will transform you. She applied this biblical framework of neurology to her neurological practice and had incredible success. The science has since caught up to the things she was practicing and says, actually, our minds are a lot more elastic. We can impact our thinking a lot more than we thought through cognitive therapy and what the Bible describes as biblical meditation. Here's an example. She tells the story of a girl in junior high, one of the many patients, uh, traumatized patients she worked with who had an accident that her, put her in a condition that the doctor said she was in a vegetative state and they should never hope that their daughter would be anything more than, quote, a vegetable. Well, they came to see Dr. Leaf. And she said, no, let's begin to set some goals. Let's begin to try and process. Let's believe that even though a huge part of the brain is damaged, we can develop the other parts of the brain. We can transform it. We can have goals. We can transform it. Well, amazing things happened in her research and in her work with several patients like this one. By the time she was in eighth or ninth grade, she got up to a fourth grade level. Incredible progress. The doctors were amazed. They said, well, this is the best she's ever going to do. And there were times of discouragement, setbacks, but they just kept coming and setting goals, taking thoughts captive, pushing negative thoughts, pushing the grieving, self-pity thoughts aside, and meditating on things that were true and pure and of good rapport, as the Bible describes. 
and through neurological practices and meditation on, on biblical truth. In this particular case, she not only caught up to her class, but as they did brain scans on her, they found that her brain was operating actually better than it had before by the time she graduated as a 12th grader. Now, while that may not be prescriptive for everyone, it was unheard of that the brain could recover from such trauma, and she had this as a regular occurrence in her practice. She began to apply that to sorts of those who did not have trauma in their life at this level and found that most of us don't check on what we're rehearsing. We don't take those thoughts captive. And we don't take thoughts the captive of grief and discouragement and disrespect and, and, and sadness. It leads to stress, which leads to depression. She says it this way in her book. She says, stress is the key to understanding the association between depression and heart disease. When you're not catching and stopping those thoughts, and that's what the Bible um, prescribes, it will lead to toxic thoughts being wired into the brain. This can lead to depressive thoughts, which cause the body to go into stage two of stress. In response, the immune system overproduces proteins called cytokines, sorry if I pronounced that wrong, as a positive response to protect the brain and body against stress. The proteins meant to help you are now overproducing in a way that leads to increased depression. And they did brain studies to show that when you think on negative things, it overproduces the chemicals, and basically these trees that are meant to bring life into your brain become dead trees that bring death into your brain. And she begins to say, if we could stop the death trees in our brains and we can start building these live trees, you could begin to move from discouragement to hope. And she found that to be true. But part of that is this first process. Don't rehearse it. Figure out what are those negative things you're rehearsing. And part of that is letting it out, getting that stuff out of yourself. The second one I think is very important is don't curse it. Don't curse it. Blaming God separates you from the source of help. And often when we're discouraged, when we're sad, when we're mad, we actually demonize or curse the very one who could help us. Now keep in mind before I read this, because he's pretty hard on God. He's going to beat on God's chest. But he's like, I'd rather beat on God's chest than pound on my own heart. And often with depression, those are the choices you have. You can keep beating yourself up, pounding on your own heart, or you can find a healthy person who's big enough to take it and pound on his chest. But notice, even in his anger toward God, he started the psalm off by saying, You're my God, the God of my salvation. So there's this weird connection to God and honesty about God. Look how he says it. He's pretty mad here. God, you remember me? Who have no friends? Uh, think I'm better off dead? You remember you. You. I'm not talking about the world now. You remember no more. Who are cut off from your hand. You have laid me in the lowest pit. You have laid me in the darkness. You have put me in the depths. Your wrath lies heavy upon me. And you have afflicted me with all your waves. You have put away my acquaintances far from me. You have made me an abomination to them. I'm shut up and I cannot get out. That's a pretty bold prayer. What kind of a relationship do you have to have with somebody to be this honest? Either a bad relationship or a really good one. But look at how he is Blaming God for his troubles, his feelings, his thoughts. That's why I say the second point is don't curse it. 
What he needs from God is comfort. What he needs from God is hope. What he needs from God is love. What he needs from God is understanding. But he's cursing the very one who could help him. And often we do that, especially as our brain gets remagnetized toward these negative thoughts. We end up destroying our own support system. And this is why if you're, if you're working with somebody, a son, a daughter, a friend who's going through depression, try not to take it too personally. Because they may be cursing you as well as God. And you're going to take that personally. You're going to get hurt. And I would just encourage you. Sometimes people need us to be the stronger ones that they can beat on our chest for a little bit. And just remember this. Hurt people sometimes hurt people. And so when you're getting hurt by somebody who's going through sadness, just remember they're hurt. They need help to try and meet them. And this is why the gospel, the main message of the Bible, is so helpful. Because you say, when we were hurting, and when we cursed God, He didn't turn His back on us. He didn't say, well, forget you. God came and He helped us when we were hurting. He saw underneath our words. He saw underneath our curses and saw what we really needed was His help. Hurt people hurt people. But if you are going through discouragement in any form, I also want to encourage you, don't curse it. What you really need is the comfort, the understanding, the hope, and the joy that He gives. And He can help. But when you curse the very source you need, you're not going to get access to what you need. And this is why, again, the Bible is so interesting. There's really two opposing views of how most people handle suffering. You know, God, you caused this. You did this. I want to call it moralism and cynicism. Both are not the way the Bible prescribes. One is very religious and one is very irreligious. But both are equally powerless. Moralism comes to problems in your life, sadness in your life, discouragement in your life, and you say, I'm suffering, God, but I'm a good person. I'm a religious person. And so you come before God and you bring out your resume. Look at all the good things I've done, God. Look at all the good parent I am. God, look at the nice things I've done for people. God, look at what the check I wrote to the church or to that nonprofit. I'm suffering, God. I did my part. Now you need to do yours. I resent the fact that you're not doing yours. You're not in relationship with God. You're in a business contractual relationship with God. You're always bartering with Him. You owe me because. And that's what religion does. Religion puts you in a place where you think God owes you, and you do your part, and He does His. And when He does it, you're like, good stuff. But when He doesn't, you're angry at Him. You're mad at Him because the God of the universe owes you. I've been there. Haven't you? If you're honest, haven't you had a prayer where you're basically handing up your resume to God and showing Him why He owes you? Now the other view is what I want to call cynicism. And that's the, pff, you Christians, you religious people, you're suffering? That's true. I'm suffering too. Guess what? As Richard Dawkins says, in a, in a world of blind chance, DNA neither knows nor cares, and we dance to its music. I'm suffering. God plays no part in the world, and this is proof that God's not in the world. It's all a crapshoot anyway. This person also doesn't have hope. He complains about the problem of evil and why God should deal with the problem of evil and why Christians are idiots for thinking that there's a God when there's evil, but he too does not have any solution for the problem of evil. So this person is angry. But has given up and has decided cynicism is the way to go. That cynicism just breeds the problem of depression and sadness and hopelessness. This person is resentful of God. 
The gospel offers you a third way, the main message of the Bible. It allows you to say, God, you are my God. You are my Lord. And I need you for salvation. And I don't know what you're doing right now. I don't understand what you're doing. Let me tell you how it feels. It feels like you're walling me in. It feels like you're throwing me out. This is what it feels like. And the grace of God says that you are in relationship with God. He is your God. Because what happened on the cross, Jesus died for you. He forgave you past, present, and future. And so you say, listen, I know you died for me. It's not that you can't love me, but it sure feels like that. And in the midst of this, you don't bargain with God as if he owes you, but you don't give up on God and become a cynic. You wrestle with him. And in the process of wrestling with that grief and struggling with it, your faith is built. Your relationship grows. God's big enough that you can say stuff like, I can't believe you've walled me in because you're safe in his grace to be honest. It's very unique. And we find this man, Heman, doing that very thing. The first two steps, don't rehearse it, don't curse it. Third thing is don't nurse it. Often what happens is that when we are uh, in sadness or discouragement or self-pity, whatever version we have, we nurse it. We feed the feelings. In other words, we say, I want out of this, but we find ourselves throughout the day telling our story to ourselves or others about why we've been so wronged, why it's so inappropriate, why no one else should act this way, why we shouldn't have been treated this way. So we nurse it. Now notice how he nurses his negativity throughout the day. You're in this prayer. My eye wastes away because of affliction. I just find myself falling apart. Lord, I've called daily upon you. I have stretched out my hands to you. I've done my part. You're not doing yours. I did religious stuff. God, are you going to work wonders if I die? If I die, it's going to be too late. Are you going to work wonders when I'm dead? Shall the dead arise and praise you? And the sort of idea of being dead catches on. He just begins to nurse this thought. Watch how he goes. He's already done it twice. He's going to keep going. Yeah, shall your loving kindness be declared in the grave your faithfulness, is that going to show up in the place of destruction? Yeah, yeah. Shall your wonders be known in that dark place of the grave? And your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? Now look again, see how he nursed it? It went from dead to grave to destruction to dark to forgetfulness. He just keeps nursing that negative thought. And that's what happens when you get into sadness. Because your soul's been had the life sucked out of you, you end up nursing those feelings of self-pity and you find yourself screwing yourself into the ground. So you need to feed the feelings you want to grow, not the feelings that are growing. But he catches himself. Just for a moment, he catches himself. He says, but, 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 okay, whoa, whoa. But to you I've cried out, O Lord. And in the morning my prayer comes to you. I'm going to catch myself. Stop rehearsing this stuff. Stop nursing this stuff. I've got to give this back to you. You hold on to this stuff. You help me with my thoughts. You help me process this. He catches himself in the midst of it. And many times that's what we need to do. We need to catch ourselves. What are the thoughts we're rehearsing? What are the thoughts we're nursing? In 1835, there was a uh, man struggling with depression. Sleeplessness, hopelessness. He just was waking up at night. Just couldn't find joy in his life. He was in Florence, Italy. He came to visit a psychologist, counselor, and said, I just really am discouraged. I really have a soul sickness. I need help. This guy said, you know what? 
you're focusing and meditating on your self-pity all day long, you need to go input some joy into your life. There is a clown that performs here in Florence who is hilarious. His name is Grimaldi. You need to go see Grimaldi. He is going to bring joy into your life. Grimaldi is going to just be able to help you in a way. It's going to just start input some, some joy into your soul. He goes, that's what you need to do. To which the man says, I can't. Why? My name is Grimaldi. So sometimes we can come across and put on a professional look and do our thing, but there can be a sadness underneath that we nurse, that we don't deal with, because we're always living with the image. So one of the practices that's helpful for me and was helpful for those who wrote lament psalms was to journal or to write out your thoughts so that you can catch the things you're rehearsing or nursing. So I'll give you an example of how I might do that. First thing, it's helpful to know that sadness comes in many forms. Now, you may not have an emotional vocabulary um, to reference these kind of things, so I'll put them up on the screen. There's different ways to lament, and I want to propose to you that there's lots of different faces of sadness. So sometimes when you're sad, it's the face of grief. I'm grieving a transition. It's not that it's bad that my daughter is at college. It's just different. I'm grieving that it's changed. Other times, it's sad. I just feel sad. I'm not sure why. Other times, I'm fearful. It's a sad because I'm fearful what's going to happen. Other times, it's self-pity. It's a very destructive kind of meditation and nursing where it's poor me. I deserve better. Other times, sadness comes in the form of being discouraged or overwhelmed. Sometimes it's resentful. Sometimes it's disillusioned, depressed, defeated, suicidal. Sometimes your sadness is because you feel unloved or neglected, unappreciated. Sometimes it's just sadness because I feel disrespected or drained or apathetic or listless or angry. So sometimes what I'll do in my journal is I'll just start with some categories. I'll just write down health, for example because that's been on my mind for the last month and the last week. And I might write down, as I'm praying, I say, God, I'll just sort of try and do this live for you. God, you know, I'm feeling very sad right now. And some of my sadness, God, is uh, coming out in the form of anger. And I think fear. Javen had a doctor's appointment this week and he had a medical procedure done that he has a disease that's potentially life-changing. And God, I'm, I'm angry at you that you're letting this happen. I'm glad we're starting to get some answers. But God, I also think I'm experiencing grief. Grief for him of what might happen, what could happen, which is leading me to some uncertainty. God, I have a tendency to look at my life from the present to the future. And I'm starting to worry about all those things that I can't control. And God, I guess what I need is I need to meet you in the moment. God, we're at the doctor for Quinn this week for several things. We're at the doctor for Javen this week for several things and for Beth for several things. And I think I'm worn out. I think I'm tired. I need you to help me not let my anger spill out into the people I love the most. God, you tell us you weep with those who weep, you grieve with those who grieve, and you also tell us that you control the future. God, I want to trust that you're in control, and 
I don't want to rehearse the thought that I need to be in control of the future because I can't. I want to trust that you know the future and that you care about my family more than I do. I might change categories and type in career. I might do the same thing with job. I might do the same thing with marriage. I may do the same thing with family. I'll just do one more for the sake of this. So marriage. I came home yesterday, God, and Beth and I got into a fight. And I realized that I was angry. But as soon as I said I realized I was really not angry as much as I was disappointed. Because Beth just had some sickness issues going on as well. That's been taken away from our time. So it's not that I was angry at her. That's how I came across, and that didn't work real well. But it was actually, I was really hoping for some attention because I had taken the kids out jet skiing for four hours, and I wanted to tell some stories, and instead I came home. Instead of being rested, she was not feeling well still, and so I was frustrated by that. Not that it was her fault, but I was frustrated, and it came out in anger. What I really wanted was to share my life. I want some appreciation for taking the kids for four hours. So actually, it wasn't just that I was mad. I was actually had a sense of loss. So God, help me to articulate to my wife what I need rather than focusing on what she did wrong because that doesn't work and it's not really what it was about anyway. Because if I don't catch that thought, what will happen is I'll start saying, look at everything I'm doing in our, in our marriage and for our kids and she's not. And that's not true, but that thought will start be rehearsing and it will lead to a bad place. So there's just an example. That's a very fast version. Some of us don't do it that fast, but just for the sake of a short version of it. So that's the kind of thing I'll do, and especially when I find my stress level going up or, or different emotions coming out. I'll get a, a journal out. I'll begin to write out the emotions like this. Now, what I love about the honesty of the Psalms is that you think it's all right. Three points. You got it. Don't rehearse it. Don't curse it. Don't nurse it. I got it. But just when he's done it and writes it out, and he's c- catching a couple thoughts. He finds himself jumping into the same cycle again. So he actually repeats all three cycles in the next few verses. He rehearses it again. Why do you cast off my soul? Why do you hide your face from me? Then he curses him again. I have been afflicted and ready to die from my youth. It's being a ruinous past. I suffer your terrors. It's you that are doing it. I am distraught. Your fierce wrath has gone over me. Your terrors have cut me off. Then he nurses those thoughts. They came around me all day long like water. They engulfed me altogether. Loved one and friend, you put far from me and my acquaintance in the darkness. Nobody cares about me. Nobody is worried about me. Nobody has befriended me. And what I love about this is the honesty. That this isn't, going through lament is not a one-time thing. It's like you get some of it out, some of the secrets out, some of the struggles out. You get a little relief. Then you usually start the cycle over again. All right, let's, get, let's boil up some of this to the top and, and pull it off. And he goes through these cycles over and over again. But each time, expression becomes the remedy for depression. Because every time a little bit more secret comes out, a little bit more sadness comes out, a little bit more God gets in, a little bit more of other people are let in. I don't know if you liked Saturday Night Live. I used to love Saturday Night Live. Saturday Night Live had a sketch uh, back in the 80s, I think, or 90s, early 90s, um, called Jack Handy's Deep Thoughts. And he talks about confronting a bully and how his dad gives him some really big advice on how to confront a bully. 
And I love this sketch because it reminds me a lot of depression because depression feels like a bully. Sadness feels like a bully that's beating you up. And maybe this deep thought will bring you some encouragement. Let's watch. By Jack Handy. When I was in the third grade, a bully at school started beating me up every day. At first I didn't say anything, but then I told Dad. He got a real scared look on his face and asked if the bully had a big dad. I said I didn't know, but he still seemed scared. And just a few days later, we moved to a new town. Dad told me if anybody picked on me not to fight back, unless I knew the kid didn't have a dad or the dad was real small. Otherwise, he said, just curl up in a ball. Jack Andy has another one where he describes a boy who's a bully who's taking his lunch money every day. And uh, he decides to take karate lessons to stand up against the bully. But he finds out at the end of every uh, karate lesson, he owes five bucks for the lesson. He decides it's cheaper just to give his lunch money to the bully. I think with a bully, that's what can happen. When, you're, when you've got the air sucked out of you, it can just say, it's just not worth the fight. But let me tell you, it is. It does get better. It's worth sticking with people who are hurt. It's working through the process of going through those cycles over and over again and catching yourself. Because each time you're getting the shame out, it's okay to admit that you're discouraged or depressed. It's okay to be honest about your struggles. Each time a little bit more of that shame's getting out, a little bit more of that secret's getting out, and a little bit more of God's coming in, and a little bit more of community's coming in as you begin to go through that process. Don't rehearse it. Don't curse it. Don't nurse it. And then lastly, don't, is I want you to do, let God reverse it. What's amazing about this point is that it doesn't exist in the Bible. Meaning in this passage, he doesn't get to the end and say, but God, despite all this, and a lot of times the Psalms end this way, I'm trusting you're in control. This Psalm ends with the three cycles. And then it's like, all right, I'm going to bed. So the point, let God reverse it, is it's through the process of lamenting, of being honest with God, that God reverses it. It's through the process of doing it, catching those cycles, that God begins to reverse the process and begins to re-inflate you in your spirit and your soul. Let God reverse it. Like in that first line of the Psalms, I'm trusting you to be my God and my Lord of my salvation. I'm turning this over to you. Moment by moment, day by day, if it takes. Expression. I'm going to skip the next slide, two slides. Expression is the remedy for depression. So here's my encouragement to us. Number one, some of us got to let some stuff out. Some of us need to invite some people in. To find somebody that you can invite into your life, to begin to journal out for yourself, to figure out why you're angry or why you're fearful, why you're mad. Some of us need to learn by doing that how to, what the Bible describes as taking thoughts captive and how to renew your mind. And I want to give you some tools to do that that I think would be helpful in that process of letting God reverse it. If maybe today was like, well, I've never thought about that before, or I need to do some work in this area, or depression, I know somebody who's depressed, or I've got some just sadness, I don't understand why. It, it, I'm like He-Man, I'm at the top of my game, but I'm not happy. We did a series last year in our first service where we go verse by verse through the Bible, and I was studying the book of First Kings. And Elijah is a man, a very famous person in the Old Testament, who struggled with depression. 
And so I did a six-week series on him called Playing with Fire, Elijah's Battle for Inner Peace. There's ten copies of that available at the service right out next to our, our CD book rack. But you can also go online at horizoncc.com, media downloads. It really gets practical on how he dealt with his depression over a six-week series. Others of us, maybe the way you begin to let people in is we have a men's study that starts this week. It's a quest for authentic manhood, Tuesday at 6.09 a.m., beginning this Tuesday. And maybe that's a way in which you want to just show up. You're not going to, nobody's going to have to share their feelings or anything. But you might want to just show up and hear other people talk about their struggles. And you're going to say when somebody authentically shares that maybe their life isn't a Facebook page, it's a factbook page, you're going to say, wow, this is a place I can be real. In fact, the guys who've gone through our three-year journey have always said the same thing. I didn't realize I didn't really have friends. I had good acquaintances, people hung out with. I'm having friends now. I'm starting to figure out what's going on inside of me in a way that I didn't even know that I wanted to do. But I'm seeing some positive changes. So maybe that's the next step for you is to let some people in by going to our men's study. We also have a family night that's beginning Sundays at 6 p.m. where Doug's going to speak, I'm going to speak, Beth Guggenberg is going to speak, uh, Mike Marker is going to speak, one of our elders. We're going to talk about how to have kind of generational family patterns and grandparenting patterns, how to create moments. But we're going to talk about, honestly, just the struggles of doing that, the transitions that we have to go through in family with kids in different ages. So maybe these are some ways that you can let some others in as well. Expression is the remedy for depression. We let our secrets and sadness out and God and others in. So we're putting the service together about two months ago. We came across a video that I thought was very helpful in dealing with this issue of shame and talking about these concepts of journaling. The video is called, How to Deal with a Dog in Your Life. Let's watch. I had a black dog whose name was Depression. Whenever the black dog made an appearance, I felt empty and life just seemed to slow down. He would surprise me with a visit for no reason or occasion. The black dog made me look and feel older than my years. When the rest of the world seemed to be enjoying life, I could only see it through the black dog. Activities that usually brought me pleasure suddenly ceased to. Doing anything or going anywhere with the black dog required superhuman strength. At social occasions, he'd sniff out what confidence I had and chase it away. My biggest fear was being found out. I worried that people would judge me. Because of the shame and stigma of the black dog, I was constantly worried that I'd be found out. So I invested vast amounts of energy into covering him up. Keeping up an emotional lie was exhausting. He could make me irritable and difficult to be around. He would take my love and bury my intimacy. He loved nothing more than to wake me up with highly repetitive and negative thinking. He also liked to remind me how exhausted I was going to be the next day. Having a black dog in your life isn't so much about feeling a bit down, sad or blue. At its worst, it's about being devoid of feeling altogether. As I got older, the black dog got bigger and he started hanging around all the time. I chased him off with whatever I thought might send him running. But more often than not, he'd come out on top. Going down became easier than getting up again. So I became rather good at self-medication, which never really helped. 
Eventually, I felt totally isolated from everything and everyone. The black dog had finally succeeded in hijacking my life. When you lose all joy in life, you can begin to question what the point of it is. Thankfully, this was the time that I sought professional help. This was my first step towards recovery and a major turning point in my life. I learned that it doesn't matter who you are, the black dog affects millions and millions of people. It is an equal opportunity mongrel. I also learned that there was no silver bullet or magic pill. Medication can help some and others might need a different approach altogether. I also learned that being emotionally genuine and authentic to those who are close to you can be an absolute game changer. Most importantly, I learned not to be afraid of the black dog and I taught him a few new tricks of my own. The more tired and stressed you are, the louder he barks. So it's important to learn how to quiet your mind. It's been clinically proven that regular exercise can be as effective for treating mild to moderate depression as antidepressants. So go for a walk or a run and leave the muck behind. Keep a mood journal. Getting your thoughts on paper can be cathartic and often insightful. Also keep track of the things that you have to be grateful for. The most important thing to remember is that no matter how bad it gets, if you take the right steps, talk to the right people, black dog days can and will pass. I wouldn't say that I'm grateful for the black dog, but he's been an incredible teacher. He forced me to reevaluate and simplify my life. I learned that rather than running away from my problems, it's better to embrace them. The black dog may always be part of my life, but he'll never be the beast that he was. We have an understanding. I've learned through knowledge, patience, discipline and humour the worst black dog can be made to heal. You know, the words of that song come directly from Psalms 3. And the Bible not only has lament psalms, it also has deliverance psalms, like that one. So sometimes we lament to God, and other times we say, God, I need deliverance. Let me give us a moment to just pray a prayer of deliverance for all of us. And we'll let the band finish out the course. Let's pray together. You want to say, God, I'm hearing the words of that song that I can't be delivered. That there is no hope. That there is no change. But I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust your way. I want to ask you to show me where I'm rehearsing lies, negative thoughts. Arise, my God, and deliver me. Arise, I want you to be my God and help me. Maybe some of you, it's not for you, it's for somebody in your life who's discouraged. And you're going to say, God, I need help. I am run out of patience. I have run out of courage. God, I've run out of energy. God, arise within me. Give me access to your patience, to your wisdom and to your love to care for somebody who's been hurting me. God, we ask for each person here that you would do as the words of the song describe, that you would arise within us and bring deliverance 
into our lives and families. Well, we hope this morning as we've talked honestly about sadness, it hasn't been discouraging or depressing to you. We hope it's been honest and real with you. Because God wants you to have hope. Those dark dog days do not have to be the only ones you have. There is hope. There is life. There is change. There is a new day. And sometimes you have to go through the winter to get to the spring. But there's a spring coming if you will follow God's path and invite other people into your life. Thanks for being with us today. If you came prepared to give financially, there's some offering boxes on your way out. If you'd like to meet somebody, put a name with a face, we'd love to say hi to you. Third door on your left is the hearth room, and we'll see you all next week as we finish up Honest to God. Thanks again.